Say 
remain standing for the reading of God's word from Acts chapter 2 this morning, beginning in verse 36. The word of the Lord says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles' brothers, What shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. You may be seated. At this time, we're going to have some family dedications, and we'd like to invite those families forward. Okay, so we have the Zavos, and we have the Plurids. You guys want to make your way up to the front. We've got a couple little ones. We at Grace Church, we encourage child dedications. They've... Throughout the Bible, the Old and New Testament have done dedications, and, and we continue that um, in the book of Mark, chapter 10. It says, Jesus says to the, said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Come on over here. We'll get everybody together. 
So we have here, we have Mar Marisol Plourd and their son William, who's four months, and Kayla, we got um, David and Nydia Zabo and their little girl, Kayla, who is nine months, right? Okay, and they're coming before us to say, we want them to follow, we want to raise our children in the way they should go. We want to honor God and pray for them. And us as a church, we are here and committed to, to pray for them, to serve them and encourage them as they raise their children. So we want to pray for them. Um, Deuteronomy 6, 6, 7 says, these commandments that I, have, that I give you today are upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. So we have a verse. You have a verse from Romans 12, 2 for William. Yes, yes, go ahead and read it. Okay. So uh, Romans 12, 2. Uh, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by re the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Amen. And David? Good morning. Um, I'm going to be reading Deuteronomy 6, 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Okay, thank you. Okay, and us as a congregation, we will pray for them. So join me in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you that we have these two families here to pray for, to, to commit to them as a body of Christ, um, to love them, to encourage them, to follow scripture in the raising of their children, and to provide for them what their needs are. Um, we pray for the power of your Holy Spirit as you work in their homes and in the lives of their their children, that you would bring them to the knowledge of saving grace in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we all said, Amen. 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 Thank you very much. Amen. We'd like to call up a short-term team as well this morning and pray for them. They're heading out to Turkey and Jordan. Yeah, so as they come up, we'll be heading out to, Jor uh, to Turkey on Thursday, this coming Thursday. And uh, we'll be spending time with Encompass missionaries. Our, our focus is providing uh, a children's program for the Encompass and missionaries as they are there as a retreat and a conference for the, the church planting uh, network of Encompass missionaries. Um, so we'll, uh, the second part of the trip, um, Dan and Jill and Tom and Judy will be going to Jordan to visit one of our missionaries that is there and spending some time with her um, and encourage her in that trip. So we just ask for you guys to pray for us as we leave. Um, our itinerary is online, and we, we're happy to, to include all of you in our trip as well. All right, let's pray for them this morning. Lord, thank you. Thank you that we can come before you. Thank you that you, even as we've read this morning already, you have called us to yourself, and then you've sent us. And Lord, we thank you for this team going out. We pray, even as there's a few details still in getting things ready to go, that you would help those to fall in place uh, by your power. Uh, Lord, thank you for, for having the opportunity for them to be sent out to be a part of the mission and supporting missionaries who are proclaiming the gospel throughout the world. Thank you that your word is going throughout the world. 
It's calling people to yourself. God, thank you for its power to save. Help us as we desire to be a church who proclaims your gospel and supports the proclamation of your gospel throughout the world. Lord, thank you for your great power. Uh, Lord, thank you for your great salvation. Lord, we're sinful people, and yet you give us a purpose and a calling, and we thank you for that. Lord, help this to just abound in joy and thanksgiving from our hearts, and Lord, let let that be a testimony to the world. Uh, Lord, let our love be a testimony to others that we are your disciples, and God, let your word come forth from our mouths that that others would repent and believe. Uh, Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
we want um, to have open hearts, open ears um, to receive truth from your word that might um, satiate and satisfy and bring contentment to our souls and give us wisdom um, for how to deal with this life. And we we ask for these things, we need these things, um, and we're able to pray for these things um, because of Jesus and his work and his mercy every day. So we just thank you in him, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Number one thing you need to know today is that children need Jesus. Children need Jesus. I'll tell you a story about the first time I saw a child come to faith in Christ. It was the summer of 1984. It was my first opportunity to do uh, full-time ministry. I was serving with the First Baptist Church of Big Bear. We were on Wren Street. We were in a home that was hosting a good news club for kids, and I was selected that day to uh, give the Bible lesson and the gospel uh, presentation, and I did so as a, I was 21 years old at the time, I believe, and I was, I was with fear and trembling, I was uh, giving this Bible lesson, and that day when I did so, a child professed faith in Christ. And I was awestruck. I was overjoyed. And I remember thinking to myself, it works. Wow, the gospel works. You share it with people and they believe it. Wow. And I knew that because I had believed the gospel and been saved, but I saw it with my own eyes. I saw it happen right in front of me. And that experience jump-started along with the opportunity to preach the gospel on Monday nights to a bunch of basketball players on the church basketball court a life of ministry to all ages, children, youth, and adults, by God's grace. And as I dove into the Word of God, I I kept seeing uh, the biblical rationale for and reality of God's gracious dealings with those He saves, those He chose to save. And and we know it started before the foundation of the world. And and at creation, then, mankind was, was made in the image of God and commanded to be fruitful and multiply and And then man sinned, and and a Savior was promised. And God made unilateral covenants that he would keep because only he could. 
through all generations. And there was a constant refrain that you, that you read in the Old Testament and bleeds into the New. Pass the truth on to the next generation. Teach my commands to your children. This multi-generational God calling his elect of all ages to himself. Beautiful truth. And yet, that idea goes out the window often when we see a cuddly newborn baby. And we start thinking all sorts of outlandish things, concepts, strange concepts get birthed in our minds and become almost cherished givens and uh, unverified assumptions in our hearts about the nature and the need and, and, the, and the destiny of, of children spiritually. And we start to think things like, they're a blank slate, they're, they're innocent, they're born innocent, they're, they're, they're sinless, they're perfect, until you know, they get infected with sin. And we just get all sorts of strange ideas that get cemented in our minds. I hope today we'll help iron out some of those wrinkles and, you know, in 2022, this year, Ligonier and Lifeway did a survey. They do one every two years on the state of theology, and what they found this time is, and things get worse for the most part, in terms of people who profess to be believers, but what they actually believe doesn't line up with the Bible. And, and they found that nearly two-thirds two of, of Americans professing to be believers now believe that everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. That everyone is born innocent in the eyes of God. And nothing can be further from the truth. And, and nothing can straighten out crooked thinking but the word of God. And uh, if, if you're a believer today, if you're a parent or a grandparent or someone who just cares about children, then the salvation of children is, is a concern of your heart. But let's be careful not to let emotions drive the bus and drive the discussion. God's word must be our anchor. The, the word alone is sufficient for all that we need in lo for life and godliness. So let's go to the word. I've chosen as my text for today, Acts 2, verses 36 to 41. I'm preaching on the salvation and sanctification of children. We had child dedications today. We just, we just witnessed two. And, and what I want to give today is the biblical rationale for God's gracious dealings with children and address some common uh, questions and concerns. I'll even tackle questions like, is there an age of accountability? And what happens when infants and young children die? As well as what the Bible says about kids being baptized or becoming church members or partaking in communion. Children need Jesus. In Acts 2, what we find is that Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, the day that the church was birthed, and he stands up, filled with the Holy Spirit. The church had just been started, and he stands up and just preaches boldly and authoritatively, a heart-piercing message. He takes three Old Testament texts and then just shows how Christ had been crucified and buried and risen and, re and now reigning and soon to return, all from the Old Testament. And the people that are hearing this, they're from all over the known world at that time, and their hearts are, are pierced by the word of God, by the spirit of God. They're convicted of their sins. 
Peter starts to, to bring the plane in for a landing on the sermon. And in verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when he said that, they were cut to the heart. Literally, they were convicted of their sins. And, and if you're convicted of your sin, you have, a, you have a painful emotion going on when you're convicted of your sins. It penetrates your heart. It, it stings like a bee sting or like a rash, and you know something needs to be done. When you're convicted of your sins, you know that something needs to be done about your sin, and you know you can't do anything about your sin. And so the people that heard Peter preach says to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what shall we do? It's what conviction of sin makes you, makes you say, what do I need to do? You tell me, I'm, I'm, in a, I'm in a bad way, I'm in a tough spot. What do I do? They knew their need. When you're convicted of your sin, you know your need. And a response is called for, you know it. And they knew it. And Peter said to them in verse 38, here's what you do. You repent of your sins. You turn from your sins and you trust in Christ. You repent and be baptized. Baptism, the, the outward sign of repentance. You repent and be baptized, every one of you. Everyone hearing these words, he tells them, you repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, this one who is risen. For the forgiveness of your sins, literally because of the forgiveness of your sins, be baptized because of your forgiveness in Christ and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You'll be regenerated. You'll be born again. You'll be alive all because of what God does. Christians get the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. He tells them you change your minds. That's what you need to do. If you're not a believer, you need to change your mind about your sin. Some of you think you're believers. Because, you know, you said yes to Jesus once or you prayed a prayer once, but the way you're living right now, no one would, would point you out and identify you as a believer. And what he's saying to these people who are convicted of their sins, they're not proud, they're not thinking they're better than everybody else, they're laid low in the dust at the foot of the cross, and they're saying, what do we do? He says, you change your mind, and you turn around, and you go the right way, and you turn from your sins, and you trust in Jesus Christ, and then be baptized upon your profession of faith, the outward sign of repentance, because of the forgiveness of your sins. That's what he told them. The absolute truth that everyone needs to hear. Everyone. Who was Peter speaking to? Well, let's look. In, in Acts 2, when the day of Pentecost, verse 1, arrives, they were all together in one place. That suddenly from heaven, a sound like a mighty rushing wind, it filled the entire house where they were sitting, divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. A whole group of people, a whole swath of people came together and it said that they were bewildered because each was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished and said, are these not all who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each one of them, in his, each of us in his own language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius, Asia, 
Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. People from all over. Presumably men and, and then women and children, whoever's coming along with the throng and they're, they're hearing and they're, it says all who, were, all who heard were amazed and perplexed. Peter stands up. He starts to preach. He's with the 11. He starts to preach and he's, he's bold about it. He's authoritative. He brings the word of God. He brings Joel 2 and Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 and he preaches the gospel. He says in verse 22, you need to know this. Hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus, he says, God raised up and we are witnesses. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Jesus is Yahweh, this Jesus whom you crucified. So they heard that and they were convicted of their sins. The people who heard it were convicted of their sins. Right now, if you're hearing these words, I hope that if you're not a believer, you're being convicted of your sins and you're feeling a weight on your soul and you're thinking, I'm under the wrath of God because I do not follow Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter if you're 5 or 95. Or 25. Or 45. Keep going up. <laughs> 55, 65. No, no. Whatever age you are, you need Jesus. There's this widely held belief among, about kids, though. There's a widely held belief about kids that it's easier for kids to come to Christ than it is for adults based on Verses like this, where Jesus says, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, and whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So some conclude that Jesus is teaching that kids have this unique kind of faith that maybe just kind of fades as, as they get older. But he is not referring to a natural propensity towards faith. Jesus is using Children, as an example, the status of children in that day as an illustration of the kind of humility you need to enter the kingdom of God. That children in that day were not the idolized treasures they are today. By the way, kids, I'm glad your family treats you well, but oftentimes kids are idolized treasures in their homes. But back then they were nobodies with status, without any status in society and Jesus is saying, until you give up yourself and become a nothing like this child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The scriptures plainly say that saving faith is a gift from God. It's true whether you're 5 or 95 and all those ages in between, or younger or older, everyone needs Jesus. And no one comes to the Father unless the Son draws him. And, and, and Jesus says that you need to believe in him and children can be saved because sinful people can be saved by God's grace. It is true that children exposed to the gospel more readily receive it than people that get hardened in their sin. 
But everyone has sin. Uh, it's true that in, between the ages of 4 and 14, more people come to faith in Christ than at any other age. But we have to ask the question, are people continuing in the faith? Is someone who comes to faith in Christ continuing on? Because are, are, they, are they saved and being saved and they will be saved? Are, are they being sanctified? That's what you want to see. You can't guarantee anyone's salvation. It's a sovereign act of God. Salvation is a sovereign act of God. And anyone who is ever saved is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Your kids are not blank slates. They're dead, lost, depraved sinners in need of a Savior like everyone else. They're not born innocent in the eyes of God. There is a sense of innocence and that they have not been tainted by sin as deeply as we have been, but they are infected by sin just as deeply. It just hasn't broken out as fully yet as it will. Your kids are not more open to Christ. They're rebellious. They're fighting against God. They're, they're running from God. When I was a child, I did not think, oh, I'm more spiritually sensitive. You must realize that your children are not blank slates. They're not blank canvases. They're not moldable clay to be shaped in whatever form you desire. They're dead in sin. They're cemented in the rebellion against God. 1 Kings 8.46 says, There is no one who does not sin. Psalm 51.5 says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. I've been a sinner since conception. Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they're born, speaking lies. None of you had to be taught to lie. You did not have to go to a nine-week course on how to be a sinner. It just broke out. You're all going, what? No, not me. Oh, yes, you. Every one of you. Every one of you that are watching online, you did not have to be taught how to be a sinner. You need to be taught how to go in the right way because your heart is bound to go in the wrong way. We all know it. Psalm 143, verse 2, in God's sight, no one living is righteous. Proverbs 20, verse 9, who can say I've made my heart clean? I'm pure from my sin. Ecclesiastes 7:20. there's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Romans 3 says, verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. And it goes on. There's none who understands. There's none who seek for God. There's none who do good. Isaiah 48, 8, you are a transgressor from the womb. All are born sinners, so all need to be born spiritually. Isaiah 59 says the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. His ear is not dull, that he cannot hear. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Your children, your grandchildren, they have no ability to love God or the things of God in and of themselves. Believe the Bible. When you start thinking those wacky things like children are angels or what have you, when you start thinking, oh, they're not, they don't have any sin yet. It's not until they commit a sin. No, they're under the wrath of God. And they will commit sin if they keep living. Give them time. Those beautiful children up here, give them time. None desire to seek him or know him. In Ephesians 2, 
Verse 4 says, but God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That is spoken of Christians, not of people that aren't believers. But he can do that in the life of your child. God being rich in mercy can make your child alive in Christ. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were enemies of God, when we were rebels against his grace, Christ died for us. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Everyone's lost without Christ. And your children will not come to Christ any easier than anyone else. But they are not beyond his saving reach. Is there an age of accountability, a specific age of accountability? I know I've heard people say before, well, you know, 12 years old, that's the age of accountability. That's rubbish. I'll tell you when the age of accountability is. There's no specific age of accountability. Your age of accountability is when you know. When you know between right and wrong, when you know you're a sinner, when you know the gospel truth, your age of accountability is as soon as you know, and you know when you know. In Nehemiah 8, Ezra the priest brings the law out before that assembly, and it says, here's who heard it, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. If you can understand my words right now, you know. If you can understand what I'm saying, if you know right and wrong, you know. In Jonah 4.11, God says this, the last verse of Jonah, Shall I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? But there were some that weren't aware, too young to be aware. But all who are aware, who can presumably understand their guilt and sin before God and their separation from God, will be held accountable for their sins. Whether you're 5 or 95, if you know, you will be held accountable for your sins. God knows those who are his. And by the way, kids are beautiful most of the time, and they're cuddly and smell good when they're babies, and most of the time, and they're totally selfish. Because every person that is born is under the sentence of death. And children need Jesus. The gospel tells us all people, including kids, are born spiritually dead and in need of a Savior. That's the first point. The gospel tells us that all people, including kids, are born spiritually dead and in need of a Savior. Our team that we're sending out to Turkey and and to Jordan, they're not going to say, oh, by the way, only if you're over age 12 will we preach the gospel to you. No, you're going to preach the gospel to everyone who can hear and anyone who can understand. Children need Jesus. That's the first point. God tells us this. Everyone's born spiritually dead and in need of a Savior. That's you. If you're here today and you're like, you've gotten this this far in your life and you don't know Christ and you're like not five or six or seven, maybe you are. And you're not a believer. You need Jesus right now. Like kids or adults. The oldest person in the room. If you don't know Christ, you you need Christ. You're going to a Christless eternity. You're going to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. That is the gospel truth. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. I mean, like, seriously. Second point. The gospel is for all, including children, whom the Lord calls to himself. Look at verse 39. 
For the promise is for you and your children. Think about it. Anybody who heard that sermon on the day of Pentecost and their kids weren't with them, you don't think they're going back home and telling their kids what they heard, whether they believed it or not? Oh, they're telling. Oh, they're telling that experience. You tell what you got at the store. You tell everybody online what you ate for lunch. I believe they're going to tell everyone they know about what they saw that day and what they heard that day and what happened that day, whether they got saved or not. For the promise is for you and your children. They were to go tell. The promise is for all to hear, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's what God does. He calls people to himself. There's no age requirement. There's no, there's no age basement or age ceiling. Do you know and understand the gospel? Children are capable of understanding the gospel. We're called in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations. No age limit. No minimum age, no maximum age. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that it's not, hey, over age you know, 90, don't go. Do you know that one of the biggest mission fields in this country right this moment are in, in homes and in rest homes and in retirement homes where people are sitting there and they're dying and no one's going to see them and no one's visiting them. And people go and preach the gospel to them. That's what they need. Children are capable of understanding the gospel. Children are capable of deep, deep faith and obedience. Children are called to repentance and, and obedience and faith. What does he say in, in verse 40? With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. You be saved. You believe the gospel and be saved. The, the gospel changes believers of every age. Believe it. Therefore, those who believe were baptized. You know, if there was a fire... Everyone in the house would need rescuing. Children need salvation. You say, well, where in the Bible does it, does, it, does it say that? Everywhere it says that people need Jesus. Every age, every life stage, everywhere it says that anyone needs Jesus is telling you that children need salvation. And Jesus rescues lost souls and calls people to himself, draws people to himself. He says, all who, who were, are given to me will come to me. So preach the gospel and trust God with the outcome. In John 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the sustenance for your soul. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you've seen me and yet do not believe. You know and you're not believing all that the Father has given me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's your assurance. Jesus said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's your assurance whether you're a young child or an oldster. Children need Jesus. You need Jesus. 
The gospel tells us that all people, including children, are born spiritually dead and in need of a Savior. And the gospel is for all, including children, whom the Lord calls to himself. Third point. First point, the gospel tells us that all people, including children, are born spiritually dead and in need of a Savior. Second point, the gospel is for all, including children, whom the Lord calls to himself. Third point, last point, the gospel calls parents to be the primary evangelists and disciple makers of their children. Not only, but primary, first and foremost. You have kids and you're a believer, you better be teaching them the word of God. You got seven days in a week. Some of you have lost time to make up for. Well, they're 20 now. I'm not sure if I should give them the Bible. Give them the Bible. Are they living under your roof? Whoever's under your roof should be hearing the word. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children. Who's going to tell them? Over and over again, you see repeated in the Bible, parents, you tell your kids. Everyone should. If you have a heart for kids, you should be telling kids that they need Jesus. Don't assume, oh, you know, they're not, they're not that sinful. They're, they're pretty nice. Yeah, I know a lot of nice older people that don't know Jesus. Some of you, 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 you probably don't know Christ. Some of you. I don't know all of you. And even the ones I know. I mean, you say you're a believer, but seriously, are you? You should, you should be okay with that question. You should be okay with being asked. If you're not okay with being asked if you're a Christian, you're probably not. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. They're to wait for the promise. In Acts 1, 4, it said they wait for the promise of the Father. Jesus repeatedly promised that the Holy Spirit would, would come and, 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 and the church is birthed on the day of Pentecost and, and this is what's happening as he's preaching. He says in verse 40, it says in verse 40, and with many other words he bore witness. He just kept on preaching and preaching and preaching and continued to exhort them. And he told them, you, you believe, you be saved. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. There's none righteous, no, not one. And it says in verse 41, so those who received or welcomed his word, just like the Thessalonians that received the word of God for what it really is, his word that does its work in us who believe, those who received, welcomed his word, were baptized, the sign of repentance, and were added that day about 3,000 souls. I love how it says souls. Doesn't say what age they are. Men, women, boys, girls got saved that day. About 3,000. Maybe it was 3,005. Maybe it was 2,995. But souls were saved. Parents are charged with bringing children up in the Lord. Parents are to teach the word of God to their children from their earliest age. Even when they're in the womb, they should be hearing the word of God. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's not a promise. It's a proverb. It's a general principle. It's founded on God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 18, verse 19, which says, I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised him. Parents are to train their kids, literally to dedicate them, to initiate their children in the way of the Lord by pointing them to Christ again and again and pointing them to what pleases the Lord again and again and again and, and pointing them to the outcomes of pleasing the Lord or not pleasing the Lord. 
They're there to give them love. They're to give them instruction. And even the rod of discipline, Proverbs 22, 15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Parents, you need to believe this principle. It's not a guarantee. I don't know how many parents I've heard say, but we did the right thing. We took them to Sunday school. We brought them to church, and they're, they're living like hell now. They're living like unbelievers. They've, they've denied the faith. Well, and, and I did what I was supposed to do. You do what you're supposed to do. Leave the results to God. Believe this principle. It's not a guarantee. But God has brought about much fruit from Christian parents teaching their children the word of God in the home. And with the church, the church has a part, of course. Ephesians 6, though, says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Fifth command. First command with the promise. It may go well with you and you may live long in the land. As a general rule, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There's submission. The submission to one another in the fear of Christ is applied to kids to submit to their parents. Parents are like, yes, keep saying it. They, they need to obey us. They do. Parents are to nurture their children in the Lord, and, and the positive duty of children is to obey their parents. Obedience is right. It is just. It conforms to God's design. Obedience means to listen to and, and do what they say. And, and honor them, and consider them valuable. And the parent, especially dads, don't make your kids angry. Don't bring them along to a deep-seated anger or resentment. Now, later on today, I don't want to get any notes from kids saying, my parents are making me angry because they asked me to take out the trash and clean my room. That's what you need to obey. Take out the trash and clean your room and all the other things they tell you that are good things to do. But parents, don't bring your kids along to a deep-seated anger and resentment by habitually provoking them. No, you need to provide tender care for them and nourish them in the words of the faith. Most Christian households need much more of God's word than what is in the Christian household now. The discipline, the, the education, literally the, the child training, the discipline used to correct the transgressions of a Christian household, and the instruction, the admonition, the training by words encouragement, reproof, rebuke, whatever is necessary to a given situation. If you're leaving it up to the church and saying, well, I'll bring them on Sundays and Wednesdays, that should cover it. You're going to feed them only twice a week too? You know, here's some porridge on Sundays and here's some roast beef on Wednesdays and you're on your own the rest of the week. I mean, come on. You feed your kids, you clothe them, you house them, give them the word of God. Children need Jesus. Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. These words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Do you know how many parents I've heard twist that to say, we just take the teachable moments. We don't teach the word in our home. We do the Deuteronomy 6 method. What are you talking about? That's ridiculous. The Deuteronomy 6 method is bringing the word of God to bear on every aspect of life. It's not happenstance. It's dialed in to do this consistently. That's what God is commanding. By the way, heart, mind, indicates your energy, your ability, your totality of your being, and you've got these sitting and walking and lying down and rising. You know what that means? Not, oh, if, it, if, it, if, if, if the opportunity lands right in front of me. That's not what it means. It means every time and place and activity the word of God should be brought to bear upon. And you're bringing your children up. Children should be expected to grow in Christ. They can be an example for those who are older. 
But kids need parents and pastors and other godly adults who uphold, not tear down biblical theology. It's a shambles today what people believe. If you're believing untruths, don't pass them on to your kids because there are millstones waiting on standby for anyone who would dare to lead the most vulnerable and impressionable among us astray. The Bible is not up for grabs, and it's, it means what God intended. What does the Bible say about the baptism of children? Look at verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's what it says about the baptism of children. If you are saved, you should get baptized. You know how many parents I've, oh, through the years, have, have heard say, oh, I'm not letting my kids get baptized until they're really good Christians. I'm like, then why'd you get baptized? It's <laughs> not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you believe and, and you're saved and you get baptized. It shows your repentance and your, your desire to follow Christ in your life. I remember one time I was teaching a baptism class years and years ago, probably 30-some years ago. And uh, it was a six-week course that I was a children's pastor at the time, and the senior pastor had written the six-week course, and I was taking kids through it. And at that time, there were kids that would come to the class, and there was like no spiritual pulse. They didn't want to be there. They were just going through it. And the parents were like pushing them to it. Like, it's about time for you to get baptized. What? Says who? You know what? The Bible says that if you're saved, you're going to want to get baptized. If you're saved right now and you're not, and you're not baptized, you're, you're a disobedient believer is what you are. I'm serious. Just get, get obedient. Get baptized. All right? That's what you need to do. It's, oh, but we don't, you know, I'm waiting for the right moment. No. No. None who desire to obey the command should be for, forbidden. They should not be forced. They should not be coerced. They should not be hindered. Believers need to get baptized. Jesus commanded us to make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The uniform practice of the apostles was that anyone who was saved and wanted to be and said, I want baptism now, would get baptized. Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. The eunuch says, what hinders me from being baptized? Peter says, if you, Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. That's, that's, what should happen with kids. It's the principle on which the, the apostles uniformly acted. It has been the practice of the church through the ages. No one is admitted to baptism without an intelligent profession of faith in Christ and saying, I want to I serve Jesus. What does the Bible say about children and church membership? Well, here's one for you. Do you realize that uh, in Ephesians 6 that I read, the children were being spoken to? The Holy Spirit wanted kids to, to listen up in that moment. But the whole letter was written to children and youth and adults. And then at some point, children are addressed in Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3. And sometimes husbands and fathers and wives and, and mothers, they're, be, they're addressed. Workers are addressed. But for the most part, everything that's written is for all ages. And to join the church means to, to join the number of those who, who believe. That you believe. If you, here's, if you want to become a member of Grace Church of Orange, here's what you need. A real profession of faith in Christ. Doesn't matter what, what age you are. Someone will say, whoa, whoa, didn't I read somewhere that says you have to be 18 to vote on church matters as a member? Yes, you did. Uh, by the way, I haven't run into many uh, you know, seven-year-olds recently that said, hey, I know who should be the next elder. Okay? <laughs> They're trusting adults to do that. That's why we say if you want to like 
weighed in on who's going to be elders and deacons and deaconesses and, and the budget and what have you. You need to be 18 years old and be an elder. I'd be 18 years old and be a member. And uh, 18 year old elders, that would be, that would, oof, that would be tough. Um, I can't imagine. I just can't imagine. And I love 18 year olds. It's just that I don't think that's what elder means. Um, anyway, uh, children are addressed in New Testament letters. Children need to join the church. Uh, again, parents, don't hinder your kids if they want to be baptized and join the church. Don't say, well, we're waiting for them to be more committed. When are you going to get more committed then? I mean, seriously, like, why are you putting rules on your kids that you're not putting on yourself? Or, or maybe you are and saying, hmm, I am really ready now. That's not the Bible teaching. The Bible says just if you believe, get baptized, be a member of a local church. What does it say about communion? Oh, there's another one. How many families I know? Oh, we're not going to do communion yet until they're real more committed to the, to the Lord or until we see proof, this and that and the other. Um, none who believe should be kept from the table. That's the rule. That's the scriptural rule. If, you're, if, if you believe in the Lord Jesus and you're a baptized believer, you're part of the church, partake of the Lord's Supper. And what about when infants and young children die? Tears our hearts. Some of you have had children die. Some of you have had children die in the womb. Some of you had children die outside the womb. Larry King once invited John MacArthur to be a panel member on his Larry King Live television show right after 9-11, September 11, 2001, after the, in the aftermath of the attacks on, on, on the U.S. And they were discussing issues of life and death and grief and hope. And King asked MacArthur this question. What about the two-year-old baby crushed at the bottom of the World Trade Center? And MacArthur immediately replied, instant heaven. King fires back, he wasn't a sinner? MacArthur answers, instant heaven. And then the conversation goes on. And, and they didn't really have a long time to unpack that. But the question is, what happens to an unborn child, to an infant, to a child, or even an adult with a mental capacity of a child after he dies. People come up with all sorts of answers that are strange, but I believe the, the, the correct answer is instant heaven. The reality is, uh, through history, millions, even perhaps billions of unborn babies, newborns, and young children have died. And millions are dying today. Millions. 25% of all conceptions do not complete the 20th week of pregnancy, one in four persons then conceived in the womb die. 75% of those deaths occur in the first 12 weeks. Perinatal death, uh, death at the time of birth, occurs in massive numbers around the world. In 1999 alone, 4,350,000 babies died at birth. Millions of babies are dying at birth annually around the world, including uh, the horrific abortion statistics we're all too familiar with. You add up the millions over the years, billions of persons who have entered eternity prior to reaching maturity, where are their souls? It's a valid question. Some will answer sentimentally uh, or what they hope is true. The universalists will tell you everyone is saved. Some believe an unborn child has no soul and has no eternal fate. Some say only elect infants go to heaven and non-elect suffer endless punishment. Others believe that infant baptism protects a child against hell and secures heaven. I think there's sound biblical evidence and theological support to say that the eternal destiny of 
persons incapable of sufficient mature understanding of law and grace and sin and salvation would include the severely intellectually disabled and those who die in the womb and in infancy and in early childhood, their fate is instant heaven. Deuteronomy 139, as for your little ones who you said would become a prey, your children who have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go and I will give them and they shall possess it. 2 Samuel 12, David says, when the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me and that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Isaiah speaks of before the boy knows to refuse the evil and choose the good. Jeremiah 19 speaks of the people forsaking God and profaning his sanctuary by making offerings in it to other gods. They have filled this place with the blood of innocence. The Bible often speaks of children of the innocence. It doesn't mean they're sinless. It means they are less tainted and they haven't broken out in sinful actions. Anyone who is ever in Christ's church as a believer is there by God's grace, by his mercy, by his sovereign election. And the shed blood of Christ has been justly applied as a substitutionary atonement for their sin. Some wrongly conclude uh, that all babies are sinful and all sinners deserve hell, therefore all babies that die in their sinful state go to hell. Not true. People once accused Charles Spurgeon of teaching that infants go to hell. He said, among the gross falsehoods which have been uttered against the Calvinist proper is the wicked calumny that we hold the damnation of little infants. A baser lie was never uttered. We hold that all infants who die are elect of God and therefore saved. B.B. Warfield once wrote, the destiny of infants who die is determined irrespectful of their choice by an unconditional decree of God dependent on no act of their own. And their salvation, by an unconditional application of the grace of Christ to their souls, through the immediate and irresistible operation of the Holy Spirit, prior to and apart from any action of their own proper wills. He says, if death in infancy does depend on God's providence, it is assuredly God and his providence who selects this vast multitude to be partakers of his unconditional salvation. This is but to say that they are unconditionally predestined to salvation from the foundation of the world. If you're here today and you have heard the gospel, then you, if you believe, you're saved by grace, but you have been condemned by your works, by your sinful deeds. If anyone is ever saved, they are saved by the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the supreme revelation of God's good grace. John MacArthur said, God by nature is a savior. How can we believe that God weeps over the lost and pleads with willful sinners to be reconciled to him if he catapults millions of innocent babies into hell before they ever reach a state of moral culpability, before they have the ability to make any moral distinction between good and evil? I'll repeat that we should be careful not to let our emotions drive the discussion, that God's word must be our anchor, that God's word is sufficient for us, and we do not know everything but God does. And we can wisely discern his intent as best we can, we can graciously give the word. We can even emphatically give it, but not dogmatically. What I would say is that if give you three practical considerations if you desire a child's salvation, salvation of children. First, consistently pray. Acknowledge God's sovereign rule and ownership over your children. They were made 
by and for him, not for you. Salvation belongs to him, so it's out of your control. If your child comes to repentance and faith in Christ, that doesn't mean you were a good parent. Good parents have unsaved kids. Bad parents have saved kids, all by grace. You cannot manufacture what you cannot control. You faithfully raise up your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and leave it to him. Secondly, you need to consistently follow Christ. You need to set your affections and find your satisfaction and joy in him. That you need to repent openly when you sin because your children are looking for anything to satisfy their needy souls. And you should never justify wrongly placed worship. Everyone's idolatrous. You should not feed your children's rebellion. If you proclaim the glory of God and are a gossip, you are a fraud. If you talk about God's greatness and then explode in anger, you're saying you think God is small. Your life will demonstrate what you love and worship. And your kids are always watching, just like all of those security cameras everywhere. They are watching you like a hawk. As a parent, as a grandparent, as a brother, a sister, a child, you are going to be sorely tested. You're going to be tempted to set your affections on things other than Christ. Children are often the idolatrous objects of our false worship. Robert Murray McShane said this, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely. Such infinite majesty yet such meekness and grace, all for sinners, even the chief. And lastly, I would say, consistently preach the gospel. You cannot guarantee the salvation of your child, but you must point them to Christ. You might ask, what about the wayward that once professed faith, but now deny it in their words and their deeds? And you say, I brought them to church, I sent them to Sunday school, and what, then they left the faith and they were looking for someone to blame, and they will often blame the church for driving them away. And it's a misnomer. And many people get upset because their kids live ungodly, unrepentant lives, and all I can tell you is only God knows those who are saved, but the eyes don't usually lie. Just don't adhere to unbiblical ideas. They are either like Peter, who went wayward and repented, or they're like Judas, who never knew the Lord. Only God knows. If your kids are wayward, keep preaching the gospel to them. Call them to repentance and faith. Children need Jesus. One time, there was a man preaching, and there was, a, there was one of the guys he was preaching to had his, had his fingers in his ears the whole time. Like, I'm not going to listen to you. And this preacher asked Charles Spurgeon, what should I do? And he says, you should pray that God has a fly land on his nose. <laughs> God has ways of waking you up to the truth. You might have been woken up today. Awoken. I don't know the condition of your soul. But may all who hear these words take heed to your soul's eternal destiny. And you know if you know. And you must turn to Christ and be saved. We, look, we, we thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you that you went more willingly to the cross than we go to your throne of grace. Lord, we come to you now and we, we ask you, Lord, that you would draw many to yourself. 
in salvation and also that they would continue on because of your grace in sanctification. That they would be fully saved on the day that you come again or call them home, whichever comes first. We praise you, we love you, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand and join us as we close singing Glorious Christ.
to be praying for our team that's going to Turkey and Jordan uh, over the next couple weeks. And uh, we'll have, we have their itinerary up online, so you can pray through that. And also, we have two books that we're highlighting today, The Family Worship Bible Guide, which is really helpful, and also a book for those who have lost children uh, safe in the arms of God. And so those are out at the book table. Let's close with 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, verses 10 to 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and its works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Thank you, Lord, for your good promises and your grace and mercy. And we go now and serve you with a whole heart. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign.